Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Lord willing, we will finish chapter 1 today. <gasps> I know, you don't believe that, right? I don't know why. We started chapter 1, I don't know, five weeks ago. The audience to which he is writing are beginning to experience persecution. Because of that, Peter is writing them a letter to tell them what they have in Christ and to remind them to have hope. We'll talk about hope again today. Two weeks ago, we started a little bit of the practical application of all this when we hit verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Christ Jesus. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Remember that phrase. We'll come back to that. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your con conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him, the father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. And that's where we finished last week. We spent most of our time talking about what it meant to be holy. If you, uh, we barely scratched the surface. If you wanted to read more, Jerry Bridges has a book, The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's very good. There's lots of uh, other books about what it means to be holy, to be set apart, to be set apart for God and for his purposes. That is to be set apart from sin, but also just to be set apart from doing things your own way. We ended last week with a discussion of fear and the fear of God. Sometimes we don't like that idea because it carries with it the connotation that we're just doing things because we're terrified. But the fear of God is a reverence and awe for God because he is God. If you remember in our discussion last week talking about the holiness of God, we talked about his holiness as in being set apart from sin which is very true, but we began with the discussion that he is set apart from everything else. He is the creator, and everything else is the created. And we as creatures, as created in the image of God, should give reverence and awe to God. And we ended there really pretty much in the middle of a sentence. And I kind of did that on purpose because I wanted you to think about this idea of fearing God, but I don't want you to think that's why, why we do what we do. So we pick up at the next sentence. Knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
Why is it that we serve God because we have been ransomed? We haven't been ransomed by cash. We haven't been ransomed by gold or silver. We've been ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you look throughout history, the idea of ransoming somebody has existed from, well, the beginning of time that I know of. During the Crusader period, you would have these knights who were usually of the wealthier class of people, and they would be engaged in a battle with the, you know, the Muslims, and the goal wasn't necessary to kill them, it was to capture them. Because if you captured them, you could ransom them for a, for a boatload of money. In fact, in the code of knighthood, the code of chivalry of the time, there's the king and then there's the lords and you work your way down to the peasants. And one of the requirements that is that you would ransom your master if he were taken captive. So... The king of England is coming back from the Crusades and he's somewhere in Germany and somebody grabs him. They phone home and say, hey, send the cash and we'll give them back. I read a hilarious story this week. It's not funny at all. It's not, I mean, there's nothing funny about it. They made a movie about the fact that uh, Getty's grandson was captured, taken, and held for ransom. I mean, Getty had a bazillion dollars for the time, but he was so tight-fisted he wouldn't give it to him. He said, no. They wanted like, whatever it was, $10 million. And he said, no. And he negotiated, they got it down to three, but Getty would only contribute 2.4 million because he was told that's all he could write off on his taxes. <laughs> so he loaned his son at 5% interest the remainder of the money. Go figure. So ransom goes all the way back. People have been captured and held for ransom from a, for a long time. Julius Caesar, when he was a youngster, was captured and held by pirates. And he told them, as soon as I'm ransomed, I'm going to come back and kill all of you. And guess what? He was ransomed, and he came back, and he killed them all. Okay? Someone has captured you and to get you back requires a payment. And that payment is called a ransom. Now, here's the question. What is it that captured you? What is it that is holding you hostage for which a ransom has to be paid? It says right here, knowing that you were ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. What did we talk about just earlier? The passion, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So, here you are being held captive by something that you have inherited from your forefathers. What in the world is this? The futile ways. What does it mean to be futile? Hopeless. Hopeless. Okay. You're without hope, 
Remember, we're going to talk about hope again in just a moment. You're without hope. There is no way of fixing the problem yourself. It isn't I can fight my way out on my own power. I can think my own way out because I'm just a smart guy. All the power and influence that I have is futile to free me. We have been freed from the futile ways of our forefathers. Now, in at least three of the last five lessons, we have raised the comment, who is the audience that Peter is addressing this? Is it a Jewish audience that is scattered around? Is it a Gentile audience that happens to live in this area? And every week I give you the same answer, yes. So if you are a good old-fashioned Gentile audience, you're a pagan. What is your futile thinking? Well, your futile thinking is your worshiping of gods and idols who aren't gods. Your belief that I can somehow control things and get salvation, whatever that means, that I can be made right with God by some worship of some idols or offerings to some God. If you're a Jewish audience, what is the futile thinking that you would be captive to? We remember that the prophets, you know, that 400-year period between, well, before that, the prophets are chastising the Jews because, well, they think they're in with God because, well, they're Jews. So they don't have to do anything. They don't have to believe in the sacrificial system. They just have to go through the motions. So we have here different aspects of futile beliefs. Thinking that just going through the motions is going to make me righteous and thinking that I can worship some idol and be made righteous. And both of those Peter labels as being futile. And so we, he's addressing an audience of believers. We have been ransomed. Somebody somehow showed up and took us from that futile thinking, that futile ways of doing things, and brought us to salvation. But they didn't do it with a bucket full of cash. They didn't bring a treasure chest full of gold coins that they had collected from the peasants to ransom the king. What was the price that was paid to ransom us. It was, in fact, the blood of Jesus Christ. Why did that work? More about that in just a moment. But with the precious blood of, God, of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot, blemish and spot. Now, at this point, you could almost 
expect that this is a Jewish audience because they would know what that meant. You go back to the book of Leviticus. You go back to all that discussion about the sacrificial system. And if you haven't read it, it's a bloody mess. You're taking these animals and you're slitting their throats and you're letting the blood pour and you're taking some of it and you're sprinkling it here. It's a bloody mess. But there was a criteria of what that animal could look like. And that is, it had to be without spot and blemish. Why? Well, I know what I would have done, right? I've got 50 sheep over here. These over here are really good sheep. This one over here, I don't think it can stand on its own feet. It's so in such bad shape. I've got to sacrifice one. Which one am I going to take? I'm going to take the one that's not going to do me any good anyway. I'm going to take the runt of the litter. That's not something you do with sheep. Anyway, I'm going to take the worst one, and I'm going to give that to God. And God says, I don't want that. God says, I want the best one. You put all your sheep in order, best to worst, and I want that one. I want the best from you. Why is he saying that in the Old Testament? I mean, blood is blood. I mean, you do an analysis of the blood and the DNA, and that sheep's blood is probably just as good as that sheep's blood. Why do you want that? Because God in the Old Testament is giving us a picture what Christ in the New Testament is going to fulfill. Why is it that Christ's blood can pay the penalty to ransom you and me. It can do that because he was without spot and without blemish. Think about this for a moment. Why do we die? I know, we get old and we, or we have accidents or something. I, no, not the immediate cause. Why do we as a species die? Because our forefather, oh wait, we were just talking about that. Our forefather and his beloved sinned, and when they sinned, their children sinned, and their children sinned, and their children sinned, and their children sinned, and their children, and their children, and this goes on generation after generation. And guess what? Every one of us has sinned. Anybody want to debate that point? Most of us are old enough to know that somewhere along the line we messed up. And if we're honest with ourselves, we did it a bunch. Now, the wages of sin is death, the book of Romans. So how do you, well... You sin and you die. But Jesus did not sin. Never in thought, word, or deed did Jesus sin. Wouldn't you hate to be his brother? 
So if Jesus dies, for whom is his blood being shed? Not for, for himself. He doesn't need it. His blood is being shed to pay the penalty for you and for me. We were captive in our futile thinking. We were captive to the world's way of doing things. We were captive to thinking, I can do it my own way. Now, I want to remind you, we have been ransomed from this. But do you remember that verse that I read a while ago, a little bit earlier? We still have to be instructed to not keep falling back into our former ignorance. It's like we were being held captive and we're now set free, but we have the habits that we had when we were being held captive. And unless we, being led by the Holy Spirit, decide not to live that way, we're just going to fall into our old habits. So we are ransomed, we are set free, and now since we are set free, we are commanded to be holy because we're no longer captive. Theologians have used the phrase before that Adam was free to sin and free to not sin. Having fallen, we were free to sin, but in one sense, we were not free to not sin because, well, everything we did was tainted by sin. As believers, we are free to not sin, even though we know we do fall back into our bad habits and sin. One day we will be glorified in heaven and we will not sin. That's the promise that we have. I don't know about you. Sounds pretty good to me. But for now, we have been ransomed from our former ignorance, from the futile ways of living, the idea that I can somehow earn, merit, obtain my salvation by some way other than from Christ. We have been freed by that, and yet we have to be reminded, now that you're here, don't live like you're over there. Don't do it. But Peter is reminding them, you can only do that because you have been ransomed. You have been ransomed. It is not saying you are in the process of being ransomed. Okay? It's not like somebody made a down payment on your ransom and he's paying it off on a monthly basis. You have been ransomed. Now live like it. That's why we are called, and that's why we can be holy, because we have been ransomed. Not with gold, silver or gold, 
And notice what it calls those things, perishable things. We've had this discussion actually earlier. You think gold seems pretty, you know, stout to me. You know, it could probably survive a lot of stuff. But it's a created thing. It's part of the material world. It's all going to pass away or it's all going to be transformed. There is the perishable ransom and there is the imperishable ransom, which is what we have through Christ. Why is this important? If we are going to live a life of hope, that hope needs to be based on that which is imperishable. More about that in just a moment. Like, in just a moment. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. There's another one of those words we don't like. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. I sin one day. And I wake up the next day and I think, oh, go, I sinned. What is God going to do about it? I have caught God off guard. I have done something that God never expected. I have put God in a tight spot because somehow he has to come up with plan B because I sinned. And Peter is telling us no. Here in time is creation right here. Here we are over here. And Jesus died right there. Okay? Creation. When was plan A put into practice? Way over here. Now, this has confused theologians for a long time. And I'll just tell you that it does, okay? But the scripture tells us before the foundations of the world were put in place, God knew what was going to happen. God put the solution into practice before the problem ever existed. Now, what kind of confuses theologians is why do you need a solution to a problem that doesn't exist yet? Is he saying that he knew Adam and Eve were going to sin? Probably. Did he cause Adam and Eve to sin? No. And that's what kind of blows their minds. But the point that Peter is trying to tell the reader of this book is not, let me explain all the theology of this to you, okay? I have never once had a class ever ask me about superlapsarianism. We're not going there. But that's what this is, okay? You don't even know what that means. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> I've got an idea. But what Peter is trying to convince them of is our sin 
is not a shock to God. It's not a, oh my, I've got to reshuffle the chairs, the deck chairs on the Titanic because the ship is going down. God's got it all taken care of. Christ's mission was foreknown, but it was made manifest when he appeared in a manger, lived a sinless life, was crucified, was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and Peter is sitting here telling his reader, because of all of that, you have been ransomed. It isn't something that confused God. What does that mean? It means it can be the basis of your faith and hope. There's this hope again. We've had a discussion for at least two weeks about what hope is. And I'm going to do it again just to remind us. You know, I hope that my car makes it home. I hope that a lot of things happen. But we use this word as if it just means kind of wishful thinking. You know, I hope the Cowboys win the Super Bowl. Oh, wait. That's not going to happen today. We hope a lot of things, and we use that word a lot. Biblically, hope is a confidence in what God has done in the past and that he will continue to do what he says that he will do. God has made us promises What can separate us from the love of God? And he gives a list. And the answer is nothing. Remember, we had this discussion a while back. Here's your salvation. It's a bad illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. Here's your salvation. Here's all the nasty things in the world. And they're trying to get your salvation and drag it away. And between them and it is the creator of the universe. They don't stand a chance. For God's promises to not be fulfilled, God would have to stop being God. And that is the basis of our hope. I looked up this week. You can find these things online. The uh, 18... Got to get to the right page. The 1824 Noah Webster's Dictionary, definition of hope. Confidence in a future event, the highest degree of well-founded expectation of good. The well-founded. You know, my expectations of the Cowboys winning ever uh, is pretty slim. But you know what? My expectation of God being able to deliver on the promises that he made is pretty good. It isn't just wishful thinking. I think it is interesting because it says, because of all of this, we have faith and hope in God. And we have this faith and this hope in the same sentence. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. 
Well, in about 30 seconds, we're going to be talking about love. But right now, it's faith and hope. Our faith and our hope are not in our ability to accomplish anything. Our faith and our hope are in the finished work of Jesus Christ and that his blood fulfilled what God said it would do. Through him, we are believers in God who raised him, Jesus, from the dead and gave him, Jesus, glory so that your faith and hope are in God. (sighs) Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's a great sentence. You ought to memorize that. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, in about four verses, he's going to have a discussion about the Word of God. Okay? The Word of God being the gospel that we are hearing. Right here, we're talking about our souls being purified by the, our obedience to the truth. Quick question. What is the truth? This isn't a hard question in the context that I just gave it to you because I just gave you the answer. Truth is the word of God. Now, there are things in this world that are true. But the truth that purifies our soul is the word of God. You go outside and let's assume you're a little bit younger than you are right now, and you go rolling around in the mud, okay? And you come back in, and you've got to get the mud off. This is not hard stuff. How do you get the mud off? Well, first off, depending on your age, your mother makes you stand outside with the garden hose first to get the start of the mud off because you're not taking that mud into your bathtub. But having gotten rid of the most of it, they put you in, they scrub you down, and they get rid of the mud. And you come out looking like a human being again, and not some pig that was brought in from down the street. That's pretty basic stuff, right? How do you purify your soul? By the Word of God. You take the Word of God and you go scrub, 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 and off comes the different layers of, what did we call it? Futile thinking and ignorance of your former self. You, at some point in your life, became a believer. I hope you did. You accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But you know what? 
you needed a little scrubbing. Not that you weren't saved. You are saved. But the sanctification process, the sanctification, being made holy. Why are we to be made holy? Because our Father is holy. And we're supposed to be like Him. It requires a little scrubbing. And what is it that we use to do the scrubbing? The Word of God. Now, I want you to understand, I said this three weeks ago, and I'm going to remind you again. The scrubbing is not what saves you. The scrubbing is what comes because you have been saved. Because you can sit there and try to scrub yourself all day long, and it's never going to work. But you be ransomed from your former self by the blood of Jesus Christ. You receive the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit is going to sanctify you. What is the Holy Spirit going to use to sanctify you? The Word of God. Now, but the Word of God's kind of boring. Well, Leviticus might be. Numbers is even worse. Let me give you a little just observation. If the Word of God doesn't mean anything to you, there's no problem with the Word of God. There might be a problem with you. Now, That's not to say that all the Word of God is immediately understandable. You need to work at it. You need to study it. You need to meditate on it. You need to take it in and make it part of your life so that the Holy Spirit will use that to purify you. How long does that take? How long you got? Because the answer is, From the day that you accept Jesus Christ and receive the Holy Spirit till the day that God calls you home, you're going to be scrubbed by the Word of God. But I don't want to. Then we are still being held captive by our former futile thinking and our ignorance. Well, I'll do it, but just a little bit. You know, here's the question that people ask, and it's, okay, how much do I need to read the Bible? And I know what the answer is. They're trying to find what is the least amount I can get away with. And I'm not going to tell you what the least amount you can get away with. My answer is always the same, more. Okay? I actually had a guy tell me one time, you know, he had stopped going to church, and he said, you know, I've heard all that before. And I don't understand that. I really don't. I have never picked this book up and not learned something I didn't know. And I've read it a few times. 
the Holy Spirit takes the word of God that is, well, Hebrews, living and active and sharper than two, any two-edged sword. You know, you got this problem and the word of God just kind of goes in there and pops out. It goes, ah, there's the issue right there. Ooh, shoot, I didn't want to know that. Let me just make an observation. Many of you, not all of you, but many of you are going to spend five hours today watching the Super Bowl. Not all of you. Some of you don't care whether who's it's and who's it's wins, okay? But you don't think anything of spending five hours watching a football game, spending two hours watching a movie, spending an hour watching a TV show. You think nothing of that. But if I told you, if I suggested to you, if I implied to you that you ought to read your Bible for an hour, you would roll over and think, I can't possibly do that. And you're probably right. Just saying. That's just an observation. And I'm the same way, by the way. The Scripture is used by the Holy Spirit to purify us. And what comes out of that? Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. I just casually remark, it's not just reading it, okay, that accomplishes it, okay? It has always amazed me. There are biblical scholars who know more Greek, Hebrew than you or I will ever know in our lives who don't believe a word of it. I've read them, and it's fascinating. I mean, they, they don't claim to believe it. To them, it's an ancient manuscript, and it's fascinating, and we study the structure, and we study why this word precedes that one, and how many times, but they don't believe it. You know, I was just casually mentioning about reading for an hour. It's actually much better to read for five minutes and to put it into practice. Just saying. If you read the passage that says, do this, in fact, we're not going to make it, so it'll be next week's lesson, but <laughs> verse 1 of chapter 2. So put off all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, if you read that and you go, yeah, I'll put off most of my malice, but you know... I really hate that guy, and I really am justified in hating that guy. I'm going to save a little malice for them. You're not putting it into practice. Why? What does it say? Put off all malice. Can't I save just a little bit for those people over there? No. And you know what? We say no, and the Holy Spirit says, eh, I'll work on it. Yes. Uh -huh. What else is happening when we read the Word of God besides getting scrubbed? <laughs> well, the question is what else is happening when we read the God, okay? Um, all Scripture does what? What are the four things it does? Reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Sometimes we are just ignorant about what we need to do, Okay. I mean, I, huh? I don't know. I have to look that one up. Okay. 
Huh? Second Timothy. What? Yeah. <laughs> I wrote it down somewhere. Because <laughs> I did look it up this week. 215. Thank you. You may find this hard to believe, but I can stand up here and I teach without notes. But if you ask me for a reference, I've got to have it written down or I'm doomed. Just saying. All scripture is doing something to us. Now, it isn't necessarily just purifying us, but that is the part that he's talking about here in this passage, and that's why we're emphasizing it. Okay? Sometimes we're just ignorant and we need to know. Okay? I was telling somebody earlier, you know, I like my Algebra 1 class. They're ignorant, and they know they're ignorant. They just don't know. They need to be instructed. Some of us know we just choose not to do it. Scrub, 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 scrub. So, the point is, the Bible and I might add, the Bible and the Holy Spirit are going to have an effect on us. And if it's not having an effect on you, you've got to think that maybe you're still being held captive to the futile ways that you inherited from those who came before you. Let's keep going. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It is interesting. The first, well, the, the second phrase of this says, love one another with brother, a sincere brotherly love. Quick, somebody tell me the Greek word for brotherly love. Some of you have been there. Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, supposedly. I've been there. I can't say I felt a lot of love. But that's the word, brotherly love. The second use of the word love, love one another earnestly, is agape. That is the love that does not seek its own way, but is seeking the good of the beloved. But notice what is necessary for that love. A pure heart. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What is a pure heart? I mean, the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We as fallen human beings, we as, well, enslaved to our former ignorance, our futile thinking, we ransomed from that, but still somehow wanting to hang out over there occasionally, have very mixed motives for a lot of things. Those mixed motives are what keep us from having a pure heart. Our goal, and I will tell you, this is a goal, is to love each other with brotherly love and agape love from a 
pure heart. And you go, that's impossible. Probably. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, it is impossible. To the extent that we are still connected to our former futile ways of operating, that is going to hinder us in our call to love one another. Now, I'll, be, I'll, be, I'll make it a little bit easier on you, okay? I don't normally do this, but I'll do it. Let's just stick with Christians for right now, okay? Brotherly love toward other believers. Agape love toward other believers. I know, you know some believers that you just want to whack up the side of the head occasionally. And not out of brotherly love, but because you're ticked off at them. Why? Because somewhere in there, somewhere in there, your heart still clings to something else. And what do we do? The Word of God, scrub, scrub, scrub. The Holy Spirit, scrub, scrub, scrub. We acknowledge the fact that the purity is not there. God, give me a pure heart. Scrub, scrub, scrub. Read the word. Yes, sir. The, uh, is the type of love that we love our brothers and sisters phileo rather than agape? That's the word used here, yeah. Really? Huh? Yeah. And, and you know, in, in my mind, you know, having listened to all these discussions, you know, for lots of time, you know, we always kind of want to say agape love is up here and everything else is worthless. Well, everything else is not worthless. Brotherly love is a great thing, okay? You know, there is the eros, which is the sexual love, and, you know, that's a great thing within the context that God has established for it. So they're all made by God. If it's love, it's coming from God. If it's love toward the wrong thing, it's coming from the devil, Okay, that is idolatry. So let's not belittle brotherly love. Okay? We're supposed to have that toward each other. You know? You know somebody's in need, you have the means of helping them, you help them. That's brotherly love. We do that. Yeah. Yes, sir. How about John chapter 21? What does John chapter 21 tell us? What does he tell you to do? It is very interesting. John, well, no, Peter. Peter, hey, he wrote this book. He had this problem that he denied Jesus. So Jesus grabs him back over and says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you. Feed my sheep. Now, what we oftentimes don't know is he says, Peter, do you agape love me? Well, Jesus, you know that I brotherly love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you agape love me? Jesus, you know that I brotherly love you. Peter, do you brotherly love me? Yes, I do. Great. Go feed my sheep. I'll start there. Notice the progression here. 
purified through obedience to the word, brotherly love, agape love, pure heart. We have a problem. We do. I do. You do. Just our mentality. We want it done. And you know what? It's going to be done. It's called glorification when you show up to heaven. Between here and there, it's you today choosing or not to be holy. Between here and there, it's choosing or not to show brotherly love toward that person you don't particularly like. Between here and there, it is life. Now, we are way out of time. But why is he doing this? The church is undergoing persecution. The beginning of persecution. What happens when you undergo persecution? You lose hope. What happens when you lose hope? You start looking inward. I've got to watch out to protect me. I've got to take care of mine. I don't know about them. Because, you know, I don't know that God is really going to fulfill what God has done. What if I'm going down the wrong path? And Peter tells them, you have been ransomed. Not by a bucket full of gold that can perish, but by the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of the confidence of that, be obedient to the word, even when it's hard. Be obedient, be obedient, have hope, have faith, and demonstrate it with love. And next week, we'll talk about how you do that. But before you get there, you got to get rid of all malice and slander. And Maybe I won't show up. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for your truth. I pray, Lord, that we would not be conformed to our former ignorance, that we would allow the Holy Spirit and the Word to work in our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.